there any barbers in the house today? Barbers. Okay. I can tell this story. <laughs> There's a Cajun restaurant in town that I've been to for lunch, but I've never been there in the evening. And I uh, went there with the vet the other night. It turns out in the evening, it's just a good old beer joint. And they had karaoke music going on. And um, there was a guy that met me at the door. He's a barber here in the city. He says, uh, I know who you are. I visited your church, on and on and on. And uh, he says, um, can I help you do anything? I says, well, I'd like to sing to my wife, just kind of surprise her. And so um, he got me in the lineup. He helped me out. Unbeknownst to me, he was signed up to sing right after me. And uh, so I got up and sang Wind Beneath My Wings to my wife, just sang my heart out. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I got real Pentecostal on him while I sang. You know, Pentecostals scream when they sing. They really don't sing. And uh, so I, when I got done. He was next. And he just went on and on. He's a little bit intoxicated. Said, This is a preacher. And everybody in this room needs to go to his church. And I need to go to his church. Everybody in this room needs Jesus. And I need Jesus. And he went on for about five minutes. They, they turned the reverb up on his voice. It was at least three minutes. Okay. Seemed like five. Turned the reverb up on his voice to get him to hush. You know, make him echo. He just kept right on. Jesus ate with publicans and sinners and drunks. And this preacher's in here eating with us. He's like Jesus. <laughs> so that relates to our text. Matthew 9, verse 10. He promised to come back. That's why I asked. And if you're in here and you didn't raise your hand, I, I'm not telling it to make fun of you. I'm just telling it because it related to the message and you really kind of blessed me. So anyway. All right, Matthew 9. Him. And so it was, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors, IRS agents, people who took advantage of Roman law and their power and abused it, and sinners, people who didn't live clean, pure lives, came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, what's he doing hanging around this unsavory crowd? But when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we've been speaking on the commands of Christ, the curriculum of the Great Commission. And his commands normally are quite clear. But here is a command to go and learn something. So it's not all about loving your neighbors yourself and doing good to those when they do bad to you. Some of it's just about learning. We're commanded to learn something here. Those who are well have no need of a physician. 
Healthy people don't go to the doctor unless it's for a checkup, right? Or unless they're a hypochondriac. Right? But those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoted from Hosea, from Hosea 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So what does this mean? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The prophets in several places blasted the people of God prophetically for getting caught up in religion and missing the heart of what it was about. It wasn't about sacrifice, as important as that was for your sins to be atoned for. It was about, the heart of the whole sacrifice issue was about the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, something to be thankful for. Not that we are religious and do things perfect to the T, but that God in His mercy has chosen to reveal to us a way for us to be forgiven. And so here these Pharisees were focused on their religion, on the perfect practice of Judaism as they defined it, and totally missed out on the beauty of the truth that God had made a way for their sins to be atoned for. They missed out. That what God ultimately was after was mercy. Not all these religious works. Now the rites of, of sacrifice and all the Old Testament rituals were beautiful things that pointed to one who would come and ultimately fulfill that. Jesus Christ. And so while we no longer operate in a way where we have to bring a lamb to be as our substitute to die for our sins, we now through faith look to Jesus who died for all sin for all time on the cross, hung between heaven and earth, God and man in the flesh for us. My sacrifice. That's beautiful. But as New Testament believers, we have to keep in mind that just as Jesus was my sacrifice, He's a sacrifice for people that are hanging out at the Grajan Cajun. He's, he's a sacrifice for your mean neighbor. As beautiful as worship is and coming to church and hearing the Word of God and going out to do good works, as great as that is, God's mercy is what it's all about. We can't forget that. And because of that, Jesus didn't come to preach to people who had their act together. He came to reach out to the sinners. Not to hang out with them and get down in the mud with them and sin himself. But he came to call sinners to, look at verse 13, to repentance. Repentance, to turn from sin to God. To turn from evil to righteousness. But he didn't stand on some podium, look down his nose and point a long finger at them and say, shame, shame, shame. No, he ate with them. He participated in conversations with them. He lived life in the midst of 
sinful humanity. And if you realize that God's definition of perfection puts us all in the mud hole, if you realize that, then you understand the beauty of the sacrifice of God, that his sacrifice began way before he went to the cross. It began with the very thought, the very plan of coming to live in the midst of us, to fellowship with us, to experience our pain, to identify with us. And so as believers, we desire to live clean and pure lives. But if we are so clean that we won't allow ourselves to get to know unbelievers, this is a true statistic. That in America, a person is most likely to lead people to the Lord during the first two or three years of their Christian life. After that, it pretty well becomes not much. Why is that? Well, when you come to the Lord, you know lots of unbelievers. And then, after about three years, your friends and relatives have either run from you, <laughs> seeds have been sown, Harvest could be born any time. Or they got saved too. But eventually, we lose our effectiveness in outreach and evangelism because uh, we don't know very many unbelievers anymore. And so for those of you that spend a lot of time with unbelievers over the holidays, we salute you. Oh, Lord. Hallelujah. That's what it's about. <laughs> That's why he came. Go to Matthew 11. Verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We mourned to you, but you did not lament. Or he's comparing the generation of religious people that wouldn't heed his word to being like little kids playing, wanting to pretend, saying, You know, hey, I'm playing the flute. Why aren't you dancing? You're not playing properly. We're having a funeral here. We're playing funeral, and you're not, you're not playing right. We got our paper dolls out. Why aren't you getting yours dressed? And it's possible to play religious games where we, through religion and even using the scriptures, attempt to recreate God in our image that suits us when he is God and we are not. And so Christ came to confront Sin in all forms, especially in the form of religion. And then he talks about how they can just become, how they're also fault finders. Verse 18, for John came neither eating or drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man, meaning Jesus, came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, there's some people, if they're critical, you can't please them. You just can't. 
you're quiet, you're ignoring them. If you're talkative, you're running your mouth. If you're strong on a, on a certain point, you're being hard-hearted. If you're merciful on a certain point, you're being a mush mouth. If you're young, you're too young. If you're older, you're too old. Just critical. So Christ is addressing that. They accuse John of having a demon and they accuse Jesus of having a drinking problem. But they called him something that he never disagreed with. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. A friend. I like that. You know, if he wasn't that, none of us, none of us would be here. He ends verse 18 with these words. But wisdom is justified by her children. What does that mean? Children are the fruit of a mother and father, right? So wisdom is justified by its fruit. One translation says wisdom is justified or proven true by its works. So you can call Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners and think you're insulting him, but look at his fruit and look at the fruit of the critically religious and you can see the heart of God in his being friend of tax collectors and sinners. 1 Corinthians 6, turn here with me. Verse 9. We're attempting to reveal the truth that while Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, he does call them to repentance. While he came down to our level, he did make a way for us to come up to his, to relate to him. All right, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, unmarried people having sexual activity outside of sex. You can technically be a virgin, but still be a fornicator because of activity. Nor idolaters, worshiper of something other than God, nor adulterers nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now the harshly religious would close our Bible and say, that's right, they're not going to heaven. And let's read on. Open your Bible back up. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Thank you, Lord. 
There's room at the cross for me. There's room for you. Oh, I know you got some skeletons in your closet of your memory. But if you know Jesus, been done away with. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We've been washed, made clean by calling on the name of Jesus, the one who shed his blood for us. We've been sanctified, set apart. He enables us to repent and actually turn from sin and to begin to walk in freedom. And we've been justified. Somebody said, just as if I never sinned. Been justified, made just, made right in the eyes of God in the name of Jesus and by His Spirit. If we took time for each person in this room to share their testimony of how the Lord washed, sanctified, and justified your life, we'd be here all day. And it'd be wonderful. It'd be a taste of heaven. I mean, it's just going to be incredible to get there to have all day. But I'm not going to keep you here all day. It's only 1038 in L.A. <laughs> get out your power bars right now. Okay, we are going to roll. Um, I have on videotape a, a selection from Dr. James Dobson's video series on bringing up boys. And... Um, we're going to hear the testimonies of John Polk and J. Michael Rayleigh. Okay? Guys who, along with the rest of us, would fit in with the categories of people who cannot inherit the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. But they are part of those who have been washed, justified, and sanctified in the name of Jesus and by His Spirit. So, let's watch this wonderful record of God's grace. Well, thank you. It's a real honor to be here and speak to you today. And I wish that we were talking about a more pleasant subject. One of the things that our staff does here at Focus is minister to parents who have children suffering with homosexuality and Christian families. Uh, just as a matter of fact, just this morning as I arrived at work, I found out that a woman who came to assist us on our staff because she was very concerned about her first cousin's lesbianism. She came to learn about homosexuality so she could take the message of hope to her cousin. We found out just today that her cousin took her life yesterday at the age of 23. This is very serious. Uh, it's Especially when you grow up in a Christian family, the conflict that arises within you. And so it is something that we do need to talk about. I'm so glad that the Ministry of Focus on the Family is actually one of the very few Christian organizations that have the courage to deal with this. Many of us just want to bury our heads in the sand and not deal with it. But what I want to do in the next few minutes is just tell you a little bit about my story. Because what really motivates me today to keep talking about this after 15 years is children. We see that children are, are being attacked, children are being assaulted, and childhood is being stripped away from especially young boys. 
when homosexuality is being taught to five-year-olds. As a matter of fact, my own son, who's four and a half years old, asked me one day, Daddy, can boys get married? How many of us, when we were kids at four and a half, would even think of such a concept? We don't even know what marriage is hardly at the age of four and a half. The children are being indoctrinated. You know, my story is very similar to many men who wrestle with homosexuality. I had a tremendous sense of insecurity when I was growing up. My parents got married very young. They got married because my mother was pregnant, and in 1963, that's what you did. You got married if you were going to have a baby. So their marriage did not have a very solid foundation. And by the time I was five years old, my parents had divorced. The combination of my parents' marriage really set me up for a lot of emotional problems. My mother came from a very domineering home where she had a lot of emotional needs, and my father came from a family where the most important thing was to make money, to earn a living, to get straight A's, to go to college, very performance-oriented. And my paternal grandfather was not nurturing of my father whatsoever. And of course, through the environment, through upbringing, that's the way my father was with me. He was very cold, he was very distant, and very quickly my father saw characteristics in me of sensitivity, of creativity, I was artistic, I was very intuitive, I was easily hurt, and that was very different from who my father was. It's interesting, you know, I think men are pretty narcissistic. We want our sons to be just like us, don't we? You know, our egos are this big. I can find this in my own parenting. I have two boys, and I'm just thrilled when I see my sons mimic me or want to do something that is like me. There's just something about men that we want our children to be like us. And when they're not, oftentimes we detach from them. And that is what my father did for me. He did not understand me. He did not know how to relate to me. So he pulled away. And the older I got, the more he pulled away. And the only other parent I had to hang on to was my mother. It's interesting, uh, a lot of us have a concept of homosexual men as being very effeminate. But I don't know if we understand where that effeminacy comes from. Well, it's the result of imprinting. It is not genetic. Uh, traits, mannerisms, characteristics are imprinted on us through learning. You can even see a mother and a daughter that are grown up, they may make the same facial expressions, the same hand gestures. You're not born doing that, you learn that through imprinting. So when I was growing up, I didn't feel safe and secure with my father. My mother was very emotionally insecure, so I bonded to her like glue. As I grew older, I even was confused where she left off and I began. It was almost as though there was a golden lasso tied around us and we were almost one person. I felt safe with her, I became her confidant and her caretaker, and I started picking up her gestures, her mannerisms, her speech patterns. Well, there may be nothing wrong with that, but when you get into school and you start going through elementary school, other children pick up on those tendencies, and what happens is I became completely alienated. I felt almost as though I was looking through a window onto a playground where the boys were, and I knew I was a boy, but I was so different and I did not belong, and I didn't know why. You know, a lot of homosexual people will tell you, well, I've been gay all my life. 
Well, we know through science, through psychology, that's not true. Children are not sexual beings before puberty unless sexuality is introduced to them through some fashion. But we are gender-based, and we bond to those that we are the most alike. That's part of what creates our gender identity, which develops into sexuality once we go through puberty and, and, and get older. But that wasn't happening for me. I was afraid of boys. I was not rough and tumble. I felt very insecure. And on and on this continued until the senior years of high school, that profound feeling of difference, of alienation, was very confusing. I didn't know what was going on. I had a dream in the back of my mind of growing up, getting married, having a family, just like everybody else. But also by the time I was a senior in high school, my mother and father both had been divorced and married three times to other people. So I had a tremendous insecurity that men would always walk out. So on my 18th birthday, a group of friends took me to a gay bar and I was seduced into homosexuality. And I say seduced into it because it was very fearful for me, but as I look back, I felt there were no other options. You know, often we say that homosexuality is a choice. And I think that's partially right, but partially wrong. As people are developing, they do not choose their feelings. As a matter of fact, many try to reject these feelings, especially if they grow up with Christian values. They try to reject them, they know they're wrong, they put them off. Now that wasn't my case, but who wants to feel different from everybody else? At the same time, you know there is something innately wrong about this kind of behavior, because God's stamp of, of imprinting is in there somewhere. And so we know there is a conflict. But I felt I had no choice, I was ushered into homosexuality, and as the time went by and years ensued, I became very addicted to this way of life. I just spiraled down into behaviors that would never even be appropriate for me to mention to you. I became a male prostitute for a period of time. I was a very promiscuous homosexual man because this is the way gay life was. This was not unusual. I, I was actually um, more chaste than most of my friends in homosexuality. By the time I was 24, I felt very desperate. I was so lonely, I was, I was alienated. Uh, my family didn't understand what was going on. I would come home from these bars. I would basically cry myself to sleep. And the cry of my heart was, isn't there some man who won't walk out on me? All these 24 years of feeling rejected by men, of feeling lonely, of feeling alienated. I had a tremendous fear of straight men, always feeling less than. And so when we look at homosexuals, we have to have compassion. You know, I think we, we get repelled by the expression of their behavior when we see it on TV. But underneath that manifestation is a profound sense of hurt, of loneliness, of alienation, of feeling different, of feeling isolated. Really, homosexuality is very easily explained, and it has so much to do with the gender identity development that is arrested, that doesn't take place. I tried to take my life when I was 24, not because I wanted to die, but I wanted to be rescued. I wanted someone to reach into my life and change it and make it better. And it was at this time when a couple uh, befriended me as I was going to college, and we developed a long-term relationship 
and one thing led to another, and Christ was introduced to me. And the reason I received Christ is because he, he was the symbol of a man who would never leave. He could never be chased away. He could never be pushed out. My behavior, my appearance, my mannerisms did not alarm him. He wasn't repelled by me. I would walk down one side of the street. He would not be afraid to walk near me. He was there. He loved me. And Jesus became the father that I never had. And of course, I still felt isolated. And I had to move from my home in Ohio all the way to California. This was in 1987 to find help to come out of this. And as the years went by and I began the very difficult struggle out of homosexuality with all these feelings, clearly understanding at this point that I was not born or made this way, that sometimes I would be so tempted to go back to homosexuality, the only thing that would keep me from it was that I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Bible was true. I just knew it was true. No matter what my feelings told me, my feelings were wrong and they lied to me. But God would never lie. And I knew if I just hung on and worked through this pain, that things would change. Well, they did. And that's the good news. Slowly, things were changing. I was becoming a whole man. I was befriended by many of the men in our church. I was feeling as a whole person. And finally, when I would look at women, I didn't feel like I was one of them, but I felt different from them. It was this wall that was between us that I wanted to break through. And, uh, you know, I have the unique opportunity of going through puberty at the age of 29. <laughs> and it was very strange doing it the second time, I assure you. Remember those feelings the first time you opposite sex or, or held hands on your first date, that feeling of electricity that went through you, that's what I felt as a 29-year-old man. And you know, I had so many experiences in homosexuality and, and sexual ones and emotional ones, but when I met the woman who I fell in love with, who would become my wife, just holding her hand felt like nothing I had ever experienced in homosexuality, and it felt right. And for the first time in my life, I felt normal. They delighted in seeing us walk through this process. And our pastor thought, you two are going to need a little help. And he started counseling us from our very first date. And that man counseled us every week until we married. He stood by us and walked along with us. And so now, uh, I've been married 10 years and have two sons and life just gets better it's not free of struggle none of us are promised a life free of struggle i have to realize that there are certain triggers to homosexual temptation i would say probably 90 percent of the time i don't experience these temptations but if i'm under stress if i'm traveling too much if i'm feeling insecure about my masculinity if i don't feel close to my male friends that old enemy comes back and sits on my shoulder and I need to walk in maintenance. You know, I always have to laugh when gay activists say, you haven't changed. If you ever have a homosexual thought or feeling, you're still gay. And my answer is, you can say whatever you want. You haven't walked in my shoes. But what I can tell you is, for 24 years of my life, even the thought of heterosexual interaction was really nauseating to me. 
and now I've had a successful marriage for 10 years, have a very fulfilling emotional and sexual relationship with my wife, have fathered two sons, so something has changed. And they always shut up. And I say, you can't explain transformation in a test tube. It's only explained by the evidence of a changed life. Thank you. I too would love to be talking to you today about the wonders of uh, flipping hamburgers or some type of career, but Revelation 12:11 says they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And I know that as individuals like John Polk and myself and the many others that we know that are out there begin to share the story of the power of Christ in our lives and how he's brought us out of very negative situations and made our lives something purposeful, it gives people hope, it gives parents hope, and it gives those that struggle with homosexuality hope. I was born in Southern California, and I, unlike John, was raised in a very Christian home. Uh, my father and my family frequented the doors every time they were open. Another thing that's very important to understand about my upbringing is that I have two older sisters that are 10 and 12 years older than myself. So you can imagine what my father that owns sporting goods stores in the Southern California area had in store for his only son. I was going to be the best football player, the best baseball player, the best basketball player, the best soccer player. I was going to be the best everything that my father could possibly make me. One of the problems was is that I didn't have many of those same interests that my father desired for me. I remember specifically at the age of nine being on a hunting trip with my father. This should have been a time where I was accepted and ushered into the realm of masculinity. I remember being on that trip. Specifically, I hit a bird down in the middle of the field. We were surrounded by 15 or 20 other men. I went over to pick that bird up and knowing that it needed to go in my bag behind me, it was still alive that I had to kill it. So I attempted to step on its head and from across the field, my father would yell things like, just pick it up and wring its neck, you sissy. And so those were times of what masculinity were represented for me. I had no desire to be like my father. I had no desire to hang out with other men. I was verbally ridiculed. My father would call me Michelle or refer to me as his third daughter, thinking that ultimately that would make me tough, that that would push me into the realm of masculinity. Instead, what it did, it caused me to fear masculinity, and I became what most of you would know as a mommy's boy. I retreated back to the safety of hanging out with my mother and my two sisters, and that was what was comfortable for me. At the age of 11, there was a man that began to pay a lot of attention to me. It was wonderful. Since I grew up in Southern California, he took me to Disneyland. He took me to the latest movies. He taught me how to surf. It was an incredible relationship. He reaffirmed who I was. But the problem was, at the age of 11, that attention turned sexual. So from the age of 11 to the age of 18, I was a victim of sexual abuse. And I can say that to you today because I know that no 26, 27, 28-year-old man should have been doing what he was doing with me at the age of 11 and 12 and 13, but it didn't feel like abuse. Proverbs 27.7 says, The man that's full loathes honey, but to him who's starving, even what's bitter tastes sweet. And I was so starving for male affirmation and attention that when this man offered me the bitterness that the world had, it met a deep need in my life. So very early, I continued to grow up. I was in junior high and high school now involved with this man in this relationship. I had a father telling me that I was less masculine than everyone else. I began to hear the words that we hear on campus today, fag, queer, and sissy. 
I came to understand what those words meant, and that label went right on. And I lived from a very early age as an identified gay individual. From the age of 16, I remember calling myself gay and referring to myself in my own mind as a gay man. I invested in the homosexual community from that age because I realized this is where I found my security. This is where I found my identity. So growing up in Southern California, it was very easy for me to invest in the homosexual community. I lived in that community for 12 years. Also, going to church. But the problem was is the church that I was attending did not speak about how men and women walked out of homosexuality. I would hear the testimonies of drug addicts. I would hear the testimonies of alcoholics. I would hear the testimonies of adulterers. But never did I hear the testimony of a man or woman that had walked away from homosexuality through the power of Jesus Christ. My church didn't talk much about the issue. So what happened in my mind when I was sitting in the pews is, well, this church doesn't care about my issue. God doesn't care about this issue, so why should I stay involved? I instead found the homosexual community was completely embracing, and when I walked into those gay bars and was around those gay individuals, I felt like I had purpose, that I finally had hope, and that I finally had a group of people that understood what I was feeling and who I was. So as I said, I completely invested in the homosexual community for 12 years. And homosexual men, as all men, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, are focused visually. So I wanted to become the most valued commodity that I could possibly become to that community. I was working out two to three hours a day. I was doing injectable steroids. I was bulimic because I wanted to eat, but I didn't want to gain weight. I wanted to have that perfect men's health body because if I had that, then I was a valued commodity to the male homosexual community. So after living there for 12 years, buying into the argument that I was born homosexual, that there were 10% of us in society, and that I needed to fight for my rights and fight against what the church and, and other people were saying about who we were, I began to march in gay pride parades and began to fight for the rights of my people. I did all of that. Living there was on this treadmill of life of the working out and the steroids and the throwing up, all the while longing to be married, longing to have children, but flushing those dreams far away from my life because I didn't think they were ever possible for who I was. It wasn't until I was 28 years old, I had gone back home to visit my family. I wanted to stay connected to my family. My sisters were going on. They had married godly Christian men. They were having children. I remember holding my nieces and my nephews and longing for that in my own life, but knowing that I couldn't attain that because I was born gay. I had so believed that issue. I remember going home one Thanksgiving to visit my family. I found myself in a gay gym, and I was headed towards an illicit situation with another man. Now, this was 11.45 at night. I really want to set this stage for you to show you how far our Savior will go to reach one that's lost. 11.45 at night, I'd lived 12 years of this miserableness, asking and begging the Lord to take care of this in my life, and he hadn't done so to this point. I had forgotten who he was. I didn't want to hear his name ever preached to me again. I found myself heading towards an illicit situation with another man from that gym. We got out to his car, and he said, I'm sorry that I've led you on, but I'm a Christian, and I'm trying to walk away from homosexuality. That was the very first time that I ever heard such a thing in my entire life. He said, well, will you at least talk to me about this? Because I began to be venomous with this man. I said, what are you talking about? 
that you can walk away from homosexuality? Don't you know that you were born gay? And if your God can change you, then why are you here? And why are you struggling with this? And why are you dealing with this? This doesn't sound like a God that I would want to serve. He said, well, will you please get in my car and talk to me about this? So 11.45 at night, we were driving around and this man began to tell me about another godly man that had pursued him with the love of Christ and was sharing with him about how his relationship with his father may have played into this. This man was also sexually abused and how that might have played in to his component of feeling as though he was a homosexual individual. And these things started to ring true and he began to talk to me about this man named Jeff. Midnight was coming at this point. We pulled into a parking lot. We were sitting there talking and my heart started to be drawn to what this man said, but yet I couldn't trust it because I knew to trust it meant that I had to trust that God that I felt had let me down. And then I had to come back to the Christian community that I felt didn't understand me and actually hated me for who I was. So he began to tell me about this godly man that was helping him to understand the root causes of male homosexuality. Jeff this and Jeff that and Jeff is challenging with me with this and all of a sudden his eyes got really big and he goes, oh my goodness, there's Jeff right now. So I felt the Lord say to me, was my arm too short to rescue you? And I knew at that point that there was something happening in the realm of whatever. And he invited Jeff over and that started a five-year godly mentoring relationship with this man named Jeff Conrad that haunted me when I didn't want it with the love of Christ. I would move from city to city. I wouldn't give this man my forwarding address. He would track me down. <laughs> he would send me birthday cards that would say, I don't even know if you're getting this birthday card, but I want to let you know that I love you, that God loves you, and that change is possible. So finally, after living on that treadmill, looking at myself in the mirror one day, I thought, you know, I only have myself to blame because I wasn't finding what I was being promised by the gay community. I was promised that I could have a relationship that would last after going through relationship after relationship after relationship, never finding what I wanted, selling myself, being arrested for prostitution, I thought, you know, I only have myself to blame because there's this man saying that there's something different for me. So, as it says of the prodigal son, when I came to the end of myself, I picked up the phone and I called Jeff Conrad and I said, Jeff, if you can be this faithful to me, surely the Jesus and the God that you know can be that much more faithful. I want to come home and I want to give this a try. So December of 1989, I left homosexuality. And I'd love to say that from that point, it's been an easy, incredible, God-serving story. But the reality is that's just not the truth. The year of 90 was hell on earth for me. I had known homosexuality since the age of 11. By that time, I was 28 years old. It was all I had known. I didn't know how to live a life that was chaste. I didn't know what to do. I would go to counseling with a Christian counselor. He would challenge me. I would feel vulnerable. I would feel opened up. And on the way home from counseling, the only way that I knew to comfort myself was to put myself in the arms of another man. And that's exactly what happened for me. I finally came about to find a group of individuals, a ministry known as Exodus International, and a church that knew how to love gay men and gay women and help them walk away from homosexuality. So I invested in that. And like, like John said, and as Dr. Dobson said, it wasn't an easy process. It was a very long, ugly, hard process. But you know, the Lord gives you the strength to be faithful when you need it. And I found that strength in who he was. And I continued to walk that process out. And as John said, I too uh, long to be married and longed to have children. And through this process, about four years into it, I began to realize that there was an individual that I had met. Her name was Angie. 
that I began to feel quite differently when I was around her. And, and John said and alluded to that very thing, you know, puberty is hard enough once, but to walk through it twice is a very difficult thing. And Angie and I began to feel very different around her, and I realized that I had fallen in love with this girl. So 1994, December 4th at 4 o'clock, I married Angie. It was an incredible experience. Here was the Lord restoring the years that the locusts had stolen. And the story gets better, and I have one last thing that I want to share with you. After years of attempting to have children, my wife and I didn't think it was possible. She herself is post-abortive, so you can imagine what was running through our minds. You know, God's grace is sufficient, except, you know, we didn't believe that there was a period at the end of that sentence. She would say, well, I've killed two children. Why would the Lord allow me to serve and to bring up another life? And I would say, I was gay for 12 years. Um, I've gone against the very creative order that he designed. Why would he ever bless me? He wants to continue to punish me. But people in the church wrapped their arms around us and said, that isn't how God works. If he's put that desire in your heart, he will somehow fulfill it, whether it be through adoption or whether it be through granting that life to you. So we moved here to focus on the family after I had, uh, believe it or not, taken a job as a youth pastor. Can you imagine a man with my story? There was a church in Memphis, Tennessee that said if we believe in the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, who are we to believe that you can't hold a position within our church? I have to tell you that through that process of desiring to be restored and be a youth pastor, which is a, a lifelong dream of mine, uh, it wasn't an easy process. I had to give my testimony to the parents. I had to give my testimony to the students. I had to give my testimony to the deacons. I had to give my testimony to the elders. I had to give my testimony to the pianist. I mean, I gave my testimony <laughs> to anybody in that church that would listen. But as I said, it was a church that believed in the life-changing power of Christ and said, who are we to say that you're not the man for the job? So they gave me a position as a youth pastor, uh, focus on the family, and John Polk um, invited me to come and be on staff. And uh, when my wife and I had moved here to Colorado Springs, we'd been married for five years. We were attempting to have children, and it just wasn't happening. So one night, my wife woke me up after we had moved into our new home, and she said, Honey, I have a verse that I want to read to you, and it was a verse in Psalm 127 that talks about how children are a heritage from the Lord. And uh, it talks about, Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And I didn't say it, thank the Lord, but I thought, Honey, why did you wake me up to read me this verse? Because I don't even have a quiver. She handed me a gift, and I remember opening the package and pulling out this leather thing, and, and I said, I'm not sure what this is, and she said, honey, it's a quiver, and here's your first arrow because we're pregnant. Oh. So December 15th, thank you. So December 15th, 1999, at 9.39 in the morning, but who's counting? My son, <laughs> Bennett Michael, was born. And Bennett means little blessed one, and it's also the last name of my brother-in-law and sister that took me in when I left homosexuality. And the story even gets better because just the other day I was handed another arrow by my two-year-old son and told that in May 9th I'll be a father again. So this is not a story about an ex-gay man or a post-abortive woman, but I'm hoping that you hear the message of hope that is given by our Heavenly Father that will go out of His way to love those that many within the church believe to be beyond God's reach. Thank you very much. We're finding that there are thousands of believers who are former homosexuals, that it's not a 
a sin that can't be broken free from. God is not cruel by denying someone access into the kingdom of God because they have a problem. But it's an addiction, a sexual addiction, just like any other addiction, that can be broken and overcome. And just as any other addiction, there remains a possibility of being tempted, but you don't have to yield to temptation if you come through to Christ. We have any body in this room that can be tempted to sin in some way? Maybe before the sun goes down. So it's just like any other sin. You can be freed from it through God's grace, by his blood, his name, and his spirit. You can be washed, sanctified, and justified and walk in freedom. And uh, what he was saying there is when he's under stress is when he's tempted the most. Um, he'd been saved for several years. He shared in, in lesson two of this series and uh, this guy's real well known. He's been in Newsweek magazine, Time magazine, the Gay Advocate magazine hates him. And uh, he uh, went to a gay bar just to look at what was tempting, being tempting there, and wound up preaching to a married man that was in in the uh, in the bar also. And anyway, the gay advocate was there taking pictures and you know, blew the whistle on him. Anyway, he he overcame and and became accountable and. Um, never yielded to it, but he was caught being tempted. And so, uh, by God's grace, uh, he is walking in freedom. Hallelujah. I'll just share one other testimony with you on the other side of, of homosexuality, the side of lesbianism. This is from the book called The Handbook for Spiritual Warfare by Dr. Edward F. Murphy. Um, a modern case study comes right out of the introductory chapter of that book. He says, a very good friend of mine was brought to Christ while she was a practicing lesbian. She had been faithful to her lover for five years. She told me the following story of her conversion in Hollywood and the gradual healing of her sexuality. Here's her testimony. A group of Christians were witnessing for Christ near Hollywood and Vine Street. As they shared the gospel, I began to hunger to know God as they did. For the first time in my life, I understood God's love for me. I was thrilled. Jesus loved me so much, he gave his life on the cross for me, even me. I received him on the spot and went home filled with peace. I sensed great joy at the reality of his love for me. Like the woman taken in adultery from John chapter 8, he did not condemn me, but he forgave me. To me, he spoke these immortal words, neither, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The people who led me to Christ did not know about my lesbian partner. They said nothing about homosexuality. They just told me about Jesus. As I went home, however, God spoke to my heart. I knew that the union was unacceptable in his eyes. I knew I would have to break off the relationship if I were to live in his kingdom. Though it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done in my life, I did what I knew was God's will. My partner did not understand. She was heartbroken. I was too, but I left. I associated with a group of Christian young adults who had brought the gospel to me. In time, I was able to tell them about my homosexual lifestyle. They became my family and my support group. I would not have survived if it was not for their support. They taught me the word of God and how to pray. I went through an emotional storm for three years. I did not know how strong the homosexual emotions were in my mind, my body, and imagination 
in my very being, in my very being. Sometimes I did not know if I would make it, but by God's grace I did. I abstained from all sexual relationships. When the yearnings came upon me, I would call out to the Lord for his strength, and he was faithful. Also, I shared with my Christian support group when the temptations became almost unbearable. She did what the word says, confess your faults to one another that you may be healed. God gradually began to change my sexual orientation. This meant he had to transform me totally, emotionally especially. Our sexuality is so interwoven with our emotions, our self-image, our mind and our will, that this transformation went to the very core of my personality. I realized my orientation was not biological, it was environmental, emotional, and the result of wrong choices I had made over a period of time. By God's grace, I realized I could change to respond sexually to men, not to women. The change seemed to move through three stages. First, I began to see women differently. They were my sisters, not my potential lovers. Gradually, I began to lose the sex drive towards women. Next, I began to notice men in a positive manner for the first time. Some of the brothers were so beautiful as men, and as my close friends, I began to lose the negative male orientation that I had known before. Lastly, I began to feel attraction towards men. This was a miracle. The thought of a sexual relationship with a man before was, per was repugnant to me, as repugnant as a homosexual relationship is to someone who's not. I could now accept the fact that marriage to a fine Christian man would be acceptable. I began to look forward to that possibility. When this change began, I knew that I was truly a new creation in Christ. Sin had degraded me into something dishonoring to God. He gave my womanhood back to me. I love him now with all my heart. Here's the author talking again. This reborn former lesbian in Christ lived for several years as a godly single woman, young adult after her sexual transformation. In time, an amazing thing happened. While actively involved in a ministry to emotionally damaged and disturbed people with other problems, a handsome Christian man became part of the ministry team with her. A few years ago, they were married, and now they have several beautiful children. Both are continuing to be used by God to minister to needy people. What a reward for faithful obedience. Few Practicing Homosexuals, this is a book on deliverance, all right, and so he's getting this out of the way as his book begins. Few practicing homosexuals are instantly set free from their orientation, just like any other addiction. To promise them this is likely to be dishonest with them. It is both without biblical basis and contrary to the church's history of, of experience. There are exceptions, however, especially if there is a direct demonic connection to the homosexual uh, orientation. If the homosexual is demonized and homosexual demons are cast out of his or her life, the rebuilding of their sexuality is usually what would take time, not the result of just laying hands on someone. And as believers, we need to realize that. Well, I laid hands on her or I laid hands on him. Must not have been serious. It's not true. It takes time. One important note brought out by my sister's testimony is the necessity of a support group if one is going to see the addiction of homosexuality broken in their life. Any addiction thrives on isolation, says a former homosexual. Once we establish a personal support system and we accept the grace of God, 
the power of any addiction will weaken even that of homosexuality. I say that in a season in our country of controversy and politics and attempting to cause a culture to accept homosexuality to the point to the point of believing it can't be helped. But saints, it can be helped. It's an addiction that can be broken just like any other. If you would like more information on this, we've got um, out on the table a uh, interview with a doctor that specializes in treating people with this addiction. And on that is his web address. You can also get online and check out Exodus International or Freedom at Last. I have a dear friend who's coming out of homosexuality who's with a ministry in Wichita, Kansas called Freedom at Last. And there he has a support group helping him walk free and breaking the addiction. And they're not even dealing with sexual issues. They're just dealing with getting close to God and facing the truth about himself and where he needs to be healed and where God needs to become his all in all. And it's their history. They've been operating for almost 20 years now, I think, for, for years. It's been their history as a person begins to grow in the Lord that other things just begin to fall into place. And they have what's called this second chance at puberty. Suddenly they notice members of the opposite sex with other eyes. And of course, that brings on other problems. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise from your word that although sin keeps us from entering your kingdom, we have the promise that you, the friend of sinners, tax collectors, the friend of hypocrites, call us all to repentance. And your word says, such were some of you. And Lord, we thank you for forgiving us all of our sin. And I ask you, God, to equip us to see addictions of every kind broken through the ministry of this house in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray if any of us are just sitting back on our laurels thinking that doing the Sunday morning thing is what being a Christian is about, I pray, Lord, that you would enable us, wake us up, Lord, to get in the trenches, to be a support to those who you will bring our way, Lord, to break free of sexual addictions, chemical addictions, relational, social addictions. In Jesus' name, God, we thank you that we've been washed, sanctified, and justified in your name and by your spirit. Amen. We're going to end the service with communion. The bread, you're going to think is, he's using tortillas. This is baked Lay's. Bread is a product of grain, right? <laughs> and is it, bread is something that's baked, right? And communion bread is not to be leavened. And so baked Lay's has two ingredients, corn and salt. And so you're going to have unleavened bread symbolizing the body of Christ, which was crushed for us, who went through the flames of persecution for us. The word says that he went in 
to the grave for us. You don't have to go to hell. He already went. And the breaking of his body caused the shedding of his blood. Lord, we thank you for the cup. We thank you for the bread. We thank you for the blood your broken body shed. We thank you for the cross you hung upon till dead. We thank you for this blood, and we thank you for this bread. Could I have eight volunteers to come on up here? And what we're going to do is distribute the elements first. And do not partake till I give you further instructions, all right? Two brothers could take that area here. Thank you.